if you can turn to your Bibles to Luke 15. Everyone saw Luke 15, verse 11? Okay. We won't quite stand yet. I'm just going to give an introduction and then we'll stand and read. All right. As you know, over the last four to five weeks, we've been answering the question, what is the gospel? Or as Paul said, what are the unfathomable riches of the gospel message? And we've learned that it's public news with public implications. So faith's not a private matter. Uh, we've learned how to share a basic clothesline version of the gospel, if you will. Uh, we've learned that you can't understand the good news until you appreciate fully the bad news. And last week we started to un unveil the good news that it starts with an offer of forgiveness. But today, in the continuation of the good news, we're going to be looking at reconciliation. So not only through the cross are, are you forgiven, you're also reconciled. So what does that mean? What do we mean by reconciliation? At the heart of reconciliation in the Greek, it's a restoration of a relationship between two parties that have been estranged. But not only um, restoration, but restored to favor. So you're restored to favor with that person. You're in good standing. You have great status with them. Another way of saying it is that there's an establishment of peace between parties that were at enmity with one another. There was hostility between each other. But again, I love the fact that even though hostile, you can be reconciled to a position of favor despite the hostility. Now you remember the bad news was that our problem is that we are separated from God due to sin. Therefore, we can see, therefore, how critical reconciliation is to the gospel message because it alters the status of our relationship with God. So we're not just enemies that are simply forgiven. We're enemies that become friends. We become friends. But there's a couple other important features to restoration. In, in the scriptures, restoration of relationship between two parties is one thing, but God is always the subject of reconciliation, never its object. Well, what do we mean by this? Well, God never is the one that needs reconciling to us. It's always us that needs reconciling to Him. So God is always the subject, and we are His object, never the opposite. Number two, God is always the initiator of reconciliation. His love is the driving force behind our reconciliation to Him. So He doesn't have to be persuaded. God, please, will you do this? He's like, no, this is who I am. This is within my, this is who I am in my character. That's my nature. I can't help but do that. This is really important because of how we view the Lord and God as Father, as we're going to get into soon. But really, within Christianity then, we know that this reconciliation is ultimately provided through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And perhaps there's no better picture of reconciliation than the parable we're going to read this morning. In this, we really see God as the initiator of the reconciliation, and we really see Him as the all-loving and patient God that He is. And so we're going to turn and look at the parable that we have come to know as the prodigal son. 
But I'm going to suggest in my lessons that we change the title to something different. But before we begin, begin and stand up and read it, you need to know the context. The context is critical for interpreting, interpreting this correctly. What stages, sets the stage for this parable is a conversation Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, and his response to their complaints about who he was hanging out with, who his choice of friends were. So look at this in chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. So the complaint is, Jesus, you're hanging out with the wrong people. If you only knew how God viewed these people, you wouldn't be associating with them. But we, as the religious leaders, as God's people, we know who you should be hanging out with and associating with. And so they grumbled against Jesus by his choice of friends and the lifestyle that these people had chosen to live. Now this sets the stage. This sets the stage for the whole parable. And so Jesus chose to give this parable to speak to the Pharisees to illustrate God's love and not disdain for such people. And the joy he experiences when people like that repent and are reconciled to him. So let's stand and read. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger, man, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that were swine, that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and left, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and now has come to life again. He was lost, has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring of what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. 
and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth and prostitute, with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, or said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, has been found. Please be seated. So in the opening verses, Jesus begins his parable by depicting a scene that to a first century Jew would have been shocking. The younger son demanding that his father give him a full share of his inheritance. Now, in the Jewish law, there were places for inheritances. We can see this in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, it says, if someone has a stubborn... Oh, wrong one. Oh, maybe I don't have it. Okay, doesn't matter. That belongs somewhere else. In Deuteronomy, it said that the firstborn son was to receive two-thirds... Uh, sorry, the, the double portion, I should say, of the father's estate. Anyone left over was to receive a single portion. So in the case if you had two sons, uh, like this parable, um, the, the older son, the elder son would receive two-thirds of the father's estate, and the younger son would receive one-third. So when the younger son asks for the inheritance, he's asking for one-third of the estate. So there were laws in place for this. The problem is this, is that according to virtually everybody I was reading and studying, they said that the normal time to divide one's inheritance was usually at death. So yes, you could pass down inheritances slowly, but the time to re re um, receive your full inheritance was at death. And we understand that too as, as Canadians, don't we? As Canadians, we know that if we're very likely to receive a, a, all of our parents' inheritance, if, or grandparents' inheritance, if they leave one, it's when they pass away, and then the siblings receive it. There's no difference in Jewish law. So what's really important here is that this son goes up to his father and demands it now. Could you imagine doing that to your own parents? Just, mom, dad, can I just quickly talk to you? Like, times are tight a little bit at home and kids need to, you know, I want to play basketball, so would you pass your inheritance down to me now? How much disrespect would that warrant from your parents? I mean, you wouldn't even dare do it, even at 30, 40, 50 years old. Well, this guy was going up to his dad and demanding his inheritance. And many people believe that really to do this actually, knowing that the inheritance were often passed down at death, was like his son was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. It's pretty much the same thing. To go up to your father and ask for it now is basically say, I'm kind of hoping you were dead so I can get this now. So this guy wants his father's things, but not his father. He wants his father's things, but not his father. So to a Jew, shocking. To a Canadian, shocking. And so, this is really important as Jesus sets the stage. But what's more astounding to those listening would be the Father's response. In verse 12, it says, He divided his wealth between them. <laughs> so right away we see the gracious Father he is. The gracious Father he is. He's already painting a picture of his character. He's inconceivably patient with rebellious kids. He's generous to those who are so disdaining and so disrespectful. But I think it's important too to notice that he gives the oldest brother his estate here as well. 
So even though the younger brother demands it, the older brother is also given his two-thirds at that time. So the father is equally generous to both kids. So Jesus doesn't end there, though, depicting the younger son's deplorable behavior. He moves on in verse 13 by saying the following. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and therefore he squandered his estate with loose living. Again, as a first century Jew, your ears would have picked up on two things in that verse. Number one, the son went to a distant country. A distant country. You're Jewish. Where do you live? Israel. So you have your own country. To go to a distant country means you left Israel to go to a Gentile land. So you're a Jewish man who goes off to a Gentile land. Again, to a Jewish listener, that's an absolute no-no. Because Gentiles are unclean. Those are godless, idolatrous people. How dare you associate with such people? And so the fact that he wants to go away to a Gentile land just shows you how far away from home he wants to go to get away from his father. That's how far he wants to go to get away from his father. He didn't choose a province within the country and stay close to home. He went as far away from dad as he possibly could. Second, notice what he chose to do with the inheritance that his dad gave him. He didn't use it to buy a home. He didn't get an education. He didn't start his own company. He didn't set up organizations to take care of the poor and the widows. He didn't seek to be generous to others. He blew his entire estate on loose living. And the older brother defines this for us in verse 30. He says, prostitutes. Prostitutes. If I were to use a modern day vernacular, or maybe it was more for the 80s and 90s, he lived his life pursuing sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right? That's what he's up to. And he blows the entire estate on that. And he continues in this lifestyle until verse 14. He's where he spent everything. So he blows the entire state on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and he spent every single dime. He's living his life in self-indulgence and for pleasure until his bank account was drained. But there was a problem. Because of, he wasn't expecting what was going to happen next. He hadn't thought about his future. And he was unprepared for the tragedy that hit the land. And so in verse 14, a severe famine occurred after he'd spent everything, and so he began to be impoverished. What the younger son was experiencing was the fulfillment of a warning issued in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 21.17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and luxury will never be rich. And he ignored that wisdom and was eating the fruit of his own way. Another proverb that was very famous. So what does a man like that do? He's got nothing left in his bank account, and he's going hungry. Well, in verse 15, we pick it up. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens. Oh, sorry, that's not true. Let's keep going here. <laughs> oh, actually, that's, that is true, yeah. What does he do in a situation of impoverishment? Verse 15, he goes and hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would, and this is the issue for this guy, he's now a pig farmer. So again, see the desperation of this guy. The desperation of this guy, a Jewish man working with pigs? 
pigs to the Jewish people are unclean. The Old Testament makes that clear. And here he is working with pigs. The normal Jew wouldn't touch a pig or get near it, even with a 10-foot pole. And this guy was now a pig farmer. But, he, but it's worse than that. Not only is he farming pigs, he's willing to eat the pig's food. In 16, it says that he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. So here's a guy who's so hungry, he wants to even eat the pig's food, but the hired men he's working with won't even feed him the pig's food. So again, things can't get much worse for this man. And so he's hit rock bottom. Finally, he's hit rock bottom. And so he, something has to change. So what changes? Well, we pick it up in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. If I were to summarize these verses in one word, he recognized his need to repent. One word for three verses. He came to his senses and thought, I need to repent for what I've done. He recognized the goodness of his father for the first time in his life. He said, my, my father's servants have enough bread. He's a good father. He recognized that he needed to confess his sin. He said, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. He recognized his unworthiness even to be called his son. All he said to him was, make me as one of your hired men. He wasn't looking to be reinstated with the relationship he maybe once had. He was actually looking just to be a hired man, just one of the working crew on the farm, on the estate. One of the boys, if you will, not, one, not his dad's son. And this intellectual thought that began in his mind, because he's processing this right in the distant country, he's thinking, I need to do this, I need to do that. His repentance went to full fruition. What started in his mind moved into action. In 20, in verse, in verse 20, he says he got up and came to his father. So thoughts turned into action. I'm going to go and make this right. Now here's where Jesus' story takes once again a surprising turn. If the verse ended here, and I were to ask you, finish the parable as to how you think this would end, what would you write? If you're thinking, no, think, don't think as a Christian, think of a Jewish man who doesn't even know about Jesus yet. How would you end the story? Not knowing what you know about Jesus. You'd probably write something like this. Well, the father, I know what he did. He definitely when he saw him coming, waited for him to, waited in the house until he showed up and had to open that door and face him. No doubt let him squirm at every step home to feel the weight of his sin as he walked to the house. When he showed up, probably made him feel the emotional heat, you know, maybe initially silent treatment, maybe just tears of hurt, potentially blow up in anger, at the very least, a probationary time where he would have to earn his way back into the family. 
in Jewish law, he actually had the right to kill him. He had the right. If someone has a stubborn son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him. His father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders of the gate of the town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of the town are stoned to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All of Israel will hear of it and be afraid. That's what you're expecting as a Jewish person. But what happens? Thank goodness we're not writing the story. Thank goodness the Jews who are listening to Jesus aren't writing the story. It's Jesus telling the story. So what does he say happens? Look at verse 20. He got up and came to his father, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Father didn't wait for him to show up on the doorstep. When he saw him, he ran towards him. Now many people believe that this comment that while he was a long way off and saw him is really important. Many Christians believe that this is proof that the father actually had been routinely waiting and looking for his son's return. Because how did he see him from such a long distance? That very well could be. That very well could be. Regardless, though, of whether that is the issue or not, it's not going to change the outcome of the story. Because the father's actions were nonetheless unbelievable. In every commentary I read, they made this comment, all the scholars, no self-respecting Middle Eastern father or man would ever do something like this. No self-respecting Middle Eastern man would ever go after a son like that. You make him grovel. You make him pay. Yet the Father's love was so great, and His mercy was so great, and unending, that the mere joy of seeing His Son come home brought an inexpressible emotion and joy that could not be contained. And if the Father's actions had not been already the talk of the town, what happened next definitely would have been in verse 21, it reads, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fat calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found, and there was a celebration. Again, Look at this through the Jewish lens. What does a robe, a ring, and sandals and a banquet represent? It's a position of high honor and status, often one of nobility, even one of nobility. Do you remember Joseph? What happened to him when he reached second in command of all of Egypt? Do you remember how he was clothed by Pharaoh? This is cool. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's. He dressed him in robes of linen and put a gold chain around his neck. 
He had him ride in a chariot as a second in command, and the people shouted before him, Make a way, thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. What does the father do? The ring goes on the finger, the robe goes on his body to cover him. Imagine what he looked like when he came home. There's no shower yet. He's running, grabbed him in the field and hugged him and brought him clothing. The guy was to be a filthy pig farming stinking mess. And he's got a purple robe on, a signet ring on his finger, and the guy is restored in the position of royalty in the father's eyes. A picture of status, a picture of value, a picture of identity. All the son wanted was the status of a hired man, and the father made him royalty. And this is lovely and, and so powerful in reconciliation. It was as, as if the father was saying this, I don't need to wait for you to prove yourself to me and clean yourself up. You don't have to earn your way back into the family. I accept you and love you as you are. I'm willing to reconcile and restore you. And I'm willing to do that for anyone with a repentant heart. And of course it was for the Father. It was an incredible time. Because he said, for this son of mine was dead, and he has come to life again. He was lost, and now has been found. I love this. He likens his son's return to the resurrection from the dead. Catch that? He equates the son's return in his repentant heart to a resurrection from the dead. This son of mine was lost and dead and has come to life again. The unfortunate thing was the father was the only one that day within the siblings that we have recorded that experienced that joy. Not everyone on the farm shared in the father's heart. And we pick this up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back from the safe and sound. But he came angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Clearly, the older son did not share in the father's sentiment, compassion, mercy, grace, unending love. Now, he didn't think it was fair, based on the comparison of their spiritual report cards, spiritual report cards. The older son, here was his claim for why you should have thrown me a party. I have never broken a single command of yours. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. So Father, you owe me. Compared to the younger brother, he devoured your wealth with prostitutes. He doesn't deserve anything. You owe him nothing. So, Father, if you looked at both of us, 
and looked at our morality, it's clear who should be having the party. He got it wrong. He believed he'd earned the right, and that it was unfair that he had never been honored the same way as the son, his younger brother. The irony is this. The father had given him two-thirds of the inheritance already. He could have thrown a party whenever he wanted. He had all the father's stuff. The father had given him everything. There was nothing left to give. He'd already given it to them all. So how did the father respond to such disdain and disrespect again from yet another son? Well, I want to begin in verse 29 and backtrack. In verse 29, initially he said to his son, um, or sorry, verse 28, when he heard about his older son, he said that he went out and began pleading with him. So again, here's the father, he hears about his self-righteous son, who's angry, and he goes out to meet him as well wherever he was at in terms of his attitude. So now he's gone after the younger son, and now he's going out initiating after the older son. And he's pleading with him, he's begging with him, he's initiating the reconciliation to be had again. And this is powerful, because he wants to plead and beg as well for his son to share in the celebration of his younger son's reconciliation. And he had the right to tear a strip off of the older son for his, his attitude towards everything. But once again, we see the father's mercy and patience by pleading and begging and not by ripping a strip off of him. So again, think of it this way. Look at, how, look at the two kinds of people that the father initiates with. One, the self-indulgent. God, I don't want you, I'm just going to do my own thing and I'm going to live life however I want. Number two, the self-righteous. God, look at me, how good I am and how morally upstanding I am and you owe me because of my goodness. <laughs> Does that not speak to the contemporary world or what? But these are the two kinds of men he's dealing with. And the father has to go and initiate in both situations. And so, this is a really important verse in verse 31. He said to his son, You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and has begun to live, and was lost, and now has been found. Again, this is a really important statement, and a true statement. He, everything the father did have was his. He divided it already in verse 12. He given the older son two-thirds of the estate. Two-thirds of the estate. And so again, because of this, he'd already been blessed him double over the son. He says, this is why we have to celebrate by your son's return. Your son's return. So what are we to learn? We have to go back to first 15 and verse 1 and 2. Jesus again, remember, he's talking to who? 
religious leaders that don't think it's cool that Jesus is spending his time hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, the dregs of society, if you will. So the parable is clear. The father represents God. The younger son represents the tax collector and sinner who Jesus is hanging out with. And the Pharisee is the older brother, the religious leaders. And so what are we to learn then from these three people? Lessons from the younger son. No matter how far away you have moved from God, forgiveness and reconciliation are available. There is no sin, nothing too big of the cross that Christ can't deal with. Nothing that will stop God from initiating His love towards you. I don't care if you move to a distant country, you become a pig farmer. Forgiveness and reconciliation are available. All that is required of you is a humble and repentant heart. That you come to your senses and go, this was stupid, moving so far away from God. Going to that reckless life when all that God wanted was the best for me. So again, this is really important. This is written to encourage all sinners to repent regardless of how much they degraded themselves. And so there's a lot to be learned from the younger brother. How about the older son? Those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that he extends grace to the most undeserving. God's people, the Pharisees, you, the Christian, you need to be glad and not mad when he extends grace to the most undeserving. Really powerful, really important, because I can fall into this trap too. You look at certain individuals in society, certain ethnic identities, certain choices they've made, and you can't help but go, I am so glad I am not like them. I'm so glad, God, that I am not like them. And we forget about the grace and the love extended to us. We forget it. Here's a warning sign that we're headed in this direction. What was the warning sign for the older son? He believed God owed him stuff because he was morally upright. When, because he believed that and compared spiritual court guards, when it didn't go the way he expected, he then got angry. His anger also contributed to his self-righteousness and he compared himself to other people. You can, when you look at God's grace extended to people and you hear about people that, especially those that hurt you and those that you've had unforgiveness towards, if they come to, if you hear that they come to know Jesus and they're starting to grow, you can be quite angry and self-righteous. Especially if it's the uncle that's abused you or the auntie that slandered you or the mom and dad that has treated you unfairly for 20 years of growing up and all of a sudden they're older now and they become a Christian. And you want them to pay. It is so easy to become the older brother. So easy.
Here's what's really important, and I didn't understand the significance of this verse until this week. What I have is yours. What should a Pharisee have done to truly live out the life as an elder brother in that context? God has said to the Pharisee, everything I have in Israel, as my people, is yours. What they should have been doing as the religious teacher who had been obey, trying to obey the commands of God and responsible for the spiritual growth of the people, how should they have been responding to the tax collector and sinner? They should have shared in the Father's love and heart for those people. They should have saw them and said, you know what, my God is a gracious God and he would have wanted to rescue those people. Everything that I've been given from the Father, I should have used, I should use, and all the resources, I should use them and do everything I can to rescue. The older brother in this context should have taken his resources from the Father and sought to rescue the younger brother. Share in the Father's heart, but he doesn't. God owes me this stuff. My Father owes me this stuff. It's mine to keep. He should have been seeking to rescue his younger brother at his own expense. Because he has all the father's estate. But they don't. And this is really important for us. We've been given everything from God. We need to use what God has given us to seek to bring rescue and healing and restoration to those that we deem unworthy. So, the older brother test. Who is in your life right now that if you heard they were reconciled to God would make you angry? Who is in your life right now that drives you absolutely crazy? If you heard they come to Christ, you'd want to compare spiritual report cards. Do you and I live as though God owes us stuff? Because of our moral uprightness. And finally, lessons from the Father. This parable is called the prodigal son, isn't it? I bet you every single one of you has the parable of the lost son. That title should be changed to the parable of the amazing father. It's all about the initiating, loving Father. And so what Jesus does for us is he, he redefines God for us, doesn't he? He says to you and I, you need to understand God as your Father. Now many in here may struggle with this, because your Father has been nothing but a disappointment. He's been harsh, he's been controlling, He's been angry. He's been abusive. And so when you hear Father, you're like, no, thank you. Don't want that. But Jesus redefines fatherhood. Generosity. Love. Forgiving. Long-suffering with stubborn people. One who desires reconciliation. And seeks to do everything he can to achieve that.
as a father went to great lengths here to offer reconciliation to the prodigal, also God offers to all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness and full restoration to those who are willing to accept it. Now Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable that it comes through him ultimately, but we have the rest of the story. And so this provision, this reconciliation to God, to the Father, is only made through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, and we'll end here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was recon reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when, he, when we plead, come back to God, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be our offering for sin, so that we may become, or we may be right with God through Christ. Notice that the reconciliation to God, His initiating love, His grace and mercy towards you as the younger son or the older son, or both at the same time in different parts of your life, was to initiate and run out after you first by sending Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on a cross to die for your sins, so that by faith in Him, you could be reconciled. The enemy that you were, the hostility that existed between you and God, He made a way for you to be brought back into relationship, move from enemy into friends. Look at the titles we were given pre-Christ. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, Enemies. Look at the titles we receive after we receive Christ by faith and we repent. Child of God, royal priest, saint, and friend. All through his blood and his sacrifice. And so one final lesson with looking at those titles. One other lesson from the Father. Through Christ, we are reconciled to a place of favor, honor, and status. We're reconciled to a place of honor and status. He's put a signet ring on you. He's put a robe on you. And he's given you these titles. And restored you to a place of honor in his kingdom. Some of you might be going through an identity crisis right now. You keep living as a disappointment. Feeling that you're disappointment to God. If we can learn anything from this parable, he loves you like crazy. He's initiating on a daily basis to, to get a hold of you. Don't believe the lies of the accuser, the devil. Know that if you've received him already, that you hold this status in his eyes. You're a child of God. You're a royal priest. You're not whatever message is playing through your head. He's put you in a place of status and honor in his kingdom. With that in mind, then, I love what he says here. Because of what Christ has done for us, he says, now he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. As reconciled people, what is our mandate? You go now and teach people and bring the message of reconciliation to them.
the hope that's been given you, the status that's been given you, the honor that's been given you, you now proclaim to others that they may receive the same grace and mercy and experience the Father's love. If I've ever asked you to define yourself as a Christian, you probably never said, I'm a minister of reconciliation. <laughs> that would not be on your t-shirt. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Paul is saying. That becomes one of your badges. As you're walking through life, walking through Okotoks, walking through Calgary, you're a minister of reconciliation because of what Christ has done for you. Lord, I'm scratching out the prodigal son in my Bible and putting down your amazing love as the title. It is uh, so good. And Lord, thank you that your Holy Spirit has spoken to us this morning and that uh, you are so great, so patient, so long-suffering, um, so kind, so generous. If you want to reconcile us, you want to know us. Even though there are times that we act like the younger son, and there are times we act like the older son. It doesn't matter, Lord, you're the initiator, you're the, the redeemer, you're the forgiver. And we just thank you for your goodness. I just pray that from this moment on as we walk out of here, that our, that our lives and hearts are changed. In Jesus' name, amen.